0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Dr. Amanda Brickell-Bellows. She's a historian of the United States in comparative and transnational perspectives. Currently, she's a lecturer at the New School and adjunct assistant professor at Hunter College. We're here to discuss her newest book, American Slavery and Russian Serfdom in the Post-Emancipation Imagination, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Amanda, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here, Sharika.
0: Let us begin with you sharing a bit about your intellectual and professional background. How did you come to study history? Um, Tell us a little bit about your your graduate um, experiences um, and your trajectory.
1: Sure. Yes. Well, as you said at the beginning, I teach at the New School and Hunter College here in New York City. My offer of courses on global slaveries, African-American history, public history, and U.S. history broadly defined. I received my Ph.D. in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and my B.A. in history from Middlebury College. Um, and it was just a, really a pleasure to be at both of those institutions and to have that liberal arts experience at Middlebury.
0: Is it at Middlebury where you came to study Russian?
1: Uh, well, I was uh, I studied Russian history and literature and um, Southern history and literature at Middlebury, but I didn't uh, begin studying the Russian language until graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill.
0: Oh, wow, Wow, that's impressive. Well, how did you come to pursue such a comparative topic? Um, and what is your the key argument you like to make for this book?
1: Well, my book, it looks at the two histories of forced labor, American slavery and Russian serfdom. Both were instituted in the 1600s and ended just four years apart in the 1860s. Serfdom was abolished first. Russia's Tsar at the time, Alexander II, issued an emancipation manifesto in 1861 that freed 40% of Russia's population, the unserved peasantry. During the Civil War here in the U.S., President Abraham Lincoln released an Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, but slavery did not officially end nationwide until the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. So my book focuses on the aftermath of these two events. I wanted to investigate how people in two different countries responded to the abolition of serfdom and slavery through cultural production during the 50 years that followed emancipation. So some of the questions I was considering were, how did men and women from wide ranging backgrounds represent slavery and serfdom in fiction, in poetry, in paintings, lithographs, cartoons, and advertisements? What messages were they trying to send to audiences during these periods of significant political and social upheaval and national rebuilding? How did various audiences respond? And I found both similarities and differences in the types of representations of slavery and serfdom and of peasants and African Americans. So, if you like, I can outline some of those arguments.
0: Yes, please.
1: All right. First, American and Russian landowning elites produced nostalgic, idealized images of slavery and serfdom that showed their resistance to their loss of power, wealth, and stature. These included representations of contented serfs and slaves and loyal peasants and freed people who yearned to return to the pre-emancipation era. Second, upper middle class Americans and Russians portrayed freed people and peasants in urban settings, far from the rural plantations and estates that had been the sites of their enslavement. Now, in cities, they're typically represented as hooligans, as troublemakers, or even as criminals, particularly in the mass-oriented lithographs and cartoons from this period. If we turn to advertisements, we see how both American and Russian businesses created aspirational ads targeting white and non-peasant middle-class consumers. These depicted African-Americans and peasants in positions of servitude other American advertisements sought to normalize the white supremacist violence inflicted upon African Americans during this period, using racist and violent imagery that masqueraded as humor. Finally, I found that African Americans and Russian peasants sought to challenge racist, nostalgic, or one-dimensional representations. They did so by portraying themselves as dignified professionals, And upstanding citizens and subjects, literature, paintings, photographs, and more. Now, I also want to mention um, some of the important differences that I uncovered in types of representations produced during the post emancipation era. Racism played a central role in shaping white representations of African Americans, but conceptions of racial difference were largely absent in depictions of Russian peasants. In addition, While African Americans were typically or not typically held up as symbols of an American national culture in media, Russian peasants did appear as national symbols of Slavic culture and in some cases were portrayed as equals to the members of other classes in Russia.
0: As you investigated these, you know, two... Well, I mean, the the genre of kind of literary and cultural production in a comparative lens. Did you find it challenging um, to kind of, you know, wrestle with different bodies of scholarship and also um, essentially kind of learn and then work in an additional language?
1: Absolutely, I did. (laughs) It was difficult. Um, I learned the histories and the historiographies of two countries in preparation for my research. I also learned the Russian language, as we talked about earlier, in preparation for archival work and for time living abroad. So it definitely took more time to analyze Russian sources than American sources, because I had to translate them first from the Cyrillic orthography of the 19th century to the modern orthography and then into English. But the effort was very rewarding. Um, And I think that the comparative method is really worthwhile for historians because it enables us to pinpoint the similarities and differences between two distinct cases. One can understand the phenomenon of American slavery even better by looking at it in a new light, for instance, by comparing it to Russian serfdom or to other forms of slavery that have existed around the world.
0: Well, that's what kind of drew me <laughs> to your to your book project as a as a um, teacher of world history. Um, I'm impressed um, both by the comparative um, framework that you used and also your ability to work um, in a world language one that is not widely um, accessible at least to scholars in the United States. I-, I thought that we might take this moment now to kind of turn our attention directly to your book, and I appreciate that um, in your earlier response, you um, kindly laid out really succinctly um, Russian serfdom um, in 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 American slavery. Um, The processes by which they ended in the middle of the 19th century. And now I was thinking that um, perhaps we can turn more attention to your argument. Um, Your book investigates literary and cultural production about former slaves in Russia and, and, or sorry, serfs in Russia and slaves in the United States and numerous genres. Um, While we don't have time to discuss each of them, I, I like for us to discuss a few different genres. And perhaps we could start with historical or popular historical fiction. In what ways um, were post-emancipation popular historical fiction about serfdom or ex-serfs, slavery or former slaves similar?
1: Terrific. Um, so my second chapter looks at popular historical fiction. And it it really contains some surprising findings about this genre. Many of our listeners might be familiar with the work of white Southern authors like Thomas Nelson Page, Joel Chandler Harris, who idealized slavery and represented free people as nostalgic for the pre-emancipation era. Um, and their work was extremely popular in the late 19th century, consumed by people in the North and the South alike. But this kind of sentimental whitewash literature was not unique to the United States. During my time in Russia, I discovered mass-oriented historical fiction written by members of the Russian nobility that very similarly represented freed uh, freed peasants as nostalgic for the era of serfdom. 19th century middle-class Russian audiences eagerly consumed this rosy, idealized literature that misrepresented the history of serfdom by ignoring the physical brutality and lack of freedom inherent in serfdom, and by portraying loving relationships between aristocratic children and serf nurses who were kind of like the idea of the mammy figure in Southern literature, were also these relationships that were very uh, close and intimate between aristocratic masters and their supposedly loyal serfs or even uh, emancipated peasants.
0: Did you find that the authors of these um, works that you studied shared any common um, biographical, you know, characteristics? Um, and if it and if they did, did it influence the way they portrayed sh- uh, serfdom um, or slavery?
1: That's a great question. Uh, the answer is yes; they did share many common biographical features. I looked at the work of eight of the most popular writers of historical fiction from the late 19th century in the U.S. and in Russia, and all of them were men who, in most cases, had some connection to slavery and serfdom through historical family land ownership or the subjugation of peasants or freed people. They were educated, upper-class individuals who had not personally experienced being enslaved or unserved, and in their literature, They promoted revisionist accounts of the histories of slavery and serfdom that whitewashed the the, the dehumanizing um, systems of forced labor to which they were connected. Mm.
0: Uh, You know, in addition to these, um, you know, kind of popular historical fiction novels and short stories. Um, You also um, turned your attention towards um, graphic and illustrated print works, you know, magazines and newspapers of the time. Um, Why did you turn to this genre? And what could it add to your understanding of how Russian and American audiences consumed literary portraits of serfdom and slavery?
1: Well, illustrated periodicals and magazines contain an abundance of representations of African-Americans and peasants. These are mass-oriented images that compose a really important genre to consider in addition to literature because they reached a broad swath of the population, including those with lower literacy levels who can you know, more easily interpret these pictures. So thanks to advancements in printing and image production technology during the late 19th century, we have publications like Harper's Weekly, Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper in the United States, and Russian journals like Niva and Vsemirna Illustratia, which gained national popularity and helped shape collective consciousness and culture in both countries. I think it's also worth noting that lithographs became increasingly popular at this time. In New York City, we looked at Courier Knives, the printmaking firm, which created more than 7,000 unique lithographs that circulated widely in the 19th century and many of which featured African-Americans.
0: Well, and and how did these, you know, graphic prints, I don't know, like Frank Leslie's popular uh, monthly, for example, or, you know, other lithographs, how did they visually represent um, Russian peasants, uh, you know, African-Americans if they're looking, you know, towards the past and looking towards uh, Russian serfdom or American slavery?
1: In graphic prints, we see many of the same patterns that appeared in literature from this period. There, are, there were nostalgic images of loyal former serfs and slaves, as well as depictions of these, you know, liberated, brawling peasants and freed people who were engaging in criminal activities in cities. The message in these representations was that peasants and freed people could be controlled under the systems of slavery and serfdom. But if they were emancipated, they would be disruptive to urban society. We do observe a handful of very compelling images that criticized slave owners and surf owners, alluding to the rape, for instance, of enslaved or ensurfed women that historically occurred in both countries. But there are far fewer critical images um, than the types that I first mentioned, the nostalgic images uh, and so forth.
0: Yeah, that was a common theme that you know you detected in the the, the literary production um, of these different sorts of uh, genres that you studied. This idealization um, or these kind of revisionist takes on the relationship between landlords and serfs or or, or enslaved people. Um, could you perhaps talk a little bit about the? Port- Trail shift as we move past the post-emancipation period, um, in terms of as we get closer closer to the 20th century, you know, how does how does the imagery shift? Do we get more of these um, pushing back, uh, more critical lenses, or or how do we, you know, start to see, um, you know, these authors and artists and intellectuals look at this time period?
1: We definitely see fewer depictions of idealized relations between landlords, serfs, or between uh, and, and enslaved people as we move into the 20th century. And I think this is because of Black and peasant achievement and advancement. At the turn of the 20th century, we have a new generation of peasant and Black artists Authors, publishers, and entrepreneurs who are challenging these nostalgic depictions of the past with realistic representations of black and peasant life in the 20th century present. Think of sociologist and activist W. E. B. Du Bois, author Charles Chestnut, the peasant publisher Ivan Sitsian, and the peasant painters Ilya Repin and Vasily Maximov. Their creations did so much to reshape ideas about emancipation about what it meant to be Black or from the peasant estate in the early 20th century.
0: Well, you know, one of my favorite uh, chapters uh, in your book um, focused on these artists, particularly oil paintings, um, and how they depicted, you know, um, Russian peasants and, and African Americans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, you, you you did mention several of their names, um, but perhaps you could kind of identify um, some of those um, oil painting artists um, who depicted, you know, these two groups. And then how might you characterize, um, you know, you said that they're, they're much more positive in their, in their portrayals. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the examples that come from these oil painting um, artists?
1: Absolutely. Um, and th- thank you. This was a really fun and interesting chapter to write. So, late 19th century artists came from a range of backgrounds. Some were from landowning families, some were from abolitionist families, and others were directly descended from serfs or from enslaved people. Some of my favorite artists include Winslow Homer, Homer, a white artist who traveled with the Union Army during the Civil War as an artist reporter, Henry Osawa Tanner, a prominent African-American painter who made wonderful genre paintings of domestic black life, and Vasily Maximov and Elia Repin, both of whom were peasants, who sought to illuminate the peasant traditions and communities that were so familiar to them. But speaking more broadly, this chapter analyzes and categorizes a huge range of portrayals that included sympathetic depictions of enslavement and of self-emancipation, images of post-emancipation civic engagement through efforts to gain literacy and the very difficult journeys of rural to urban migrants who were seeking better lives for their families and for themselves as liberated people.
0: Your, your examination of these oil paintings, but it was also true. And I would say in the, the, the literary um, genres that you, you studied earlier in your book, you know, you start to detect some discernible patterns, at least, Um, In terms of the visual depictions of Russian peasants and and African Americans, particularly with regard to military service and education. So how are these Russian and American oil painters, for example, um, linking military service um, to their portrayals of peasants and African Americans
1: There are truly fascinating images of African-American and peasant soldiers from the late 19th century, but these images differ in important ways. In the United States, we have Northern painters, including Thomas Waterman Wood and Edward Lampson Henry, depicting noble Black Union soldiers. Now these heroic representations encouraged the white public to see freed people as citizens, people whose military service and self-sacrifice helped defeat slavery and kept the Union together. By contrast, Russian painters including Repin, uh, a man named Konstantin Savitsky, and Nikolai uh, Timonenko depicted peasants for whom conscription into the military was akin to enslavement. Conscripted soldiers historically served long terms and were separated from their families for years and years in Russia. Many never even returned home again due to the high mortality rates in the Russian army so while Russian African American military service is depicted as a liberating endeavor, the military service of Russian peasants was represented as oppressive and constraining
0: mm. and why do you think increasingly um, these artists were inserting the subject of education um you know in you know onto their onto their um portraits?
1: So, Russian and American painters were also frequently depicting scenes of emancipated peasants and of freed people seeking to gain an education. Reading was forbidden under slavery, and literacy rates were extremely low among peasants and freed people after emancipation. But in both countries, we have new schools and colleges that were established after abolition that gave African Americans and peasants important new opportunities. Illiteracy rates among African Americans dropped from 80% of people 14 and older in 1870 to 30.5% in 1910. American artists painted poignant scenes of African American adults and children learning how to read. Often the book of choice in these paintings was the Bible. Paintings like these show the degree to which reading could be a spiritual act for African American Christians. Literacy rates among rural peasants increased from 6% in the 1860s to 25% in the 1910s. And there are charming paintings of peasant children entering the threshold of a classroom for the first time or struggling to figure out a challenging math problem on a blackboard from the 19th century.
0: Hmm. I'm curious, to to what degree do you think this this legacy of literary and cultural portrayals, um, whether that be of serfdom and slavery or Russian peasants and African-American citizens for the writers and artists um, that you studied, particularly at the turn of the 20th century?
1: This is a great question. Um, So at the turn of the 20th century, we see... Textual and visual sources produced by some of the usual suspects like Harris and Page and the Russian authors of mass-oriented fiction that continue to, you know, they're continuing to churn out these nostalgic representations of slavery and serfdom. But in 1900s, more than ever before, we have exciting new depictions of peasants and African-Americans. Authors like Charles Chestnut and Kate Chopin tackled complex topics relating to interracial relationships and passing in their short stories. In Russia, Anton Chekhov, the son of a serf, published short stories in a realistic style that revealed to audiences the hardships of peasant life. So at the turn of the 20th century, I think we're seeing less nostalgia and sentimentalism and more realism uh, in the work of authors, particularly those who are peasants or who were, uh, are African-American.
0: I've been wondering. Um, I just have these, these two questions that popped in my mind as you were talking about um, some of the ways in which these these intellectuals and artists and authors are kind of thinking about um, serfdom and slavery in the past, and and how they're kind of clo- you know newly envisioning them as citizens of you know the Russian or c- citizens of the United States or or subjects of the Russian Empire at this point. And and the the thing we haven't really directly talked about that's Front and center, I think, in your argument is race. Um, mm-hmm. To what degree um, does race really distinguish um, the, di- the differences that we we see playing out in the ways in which um, these two emancipated groups are being um, constructed in the literary and cultural imagination of their mm. of their countries?
1: That's a great question. I mean, there there are major differences. Uh, between these two countries. And I really, I've turned uh, to Peter Kolchin, the comparative historian, to gain an understanding of this. So Kolchin in his book, Unfree Labor, argues that under serfdom, you know, these aristocrats, they viewed peasants as part of Russian society, albeit at its lowest level, um, the the kind of the class level, because they share with uh, the serfs the same religion. Russian Orthodoxy, the same language, and the same ethnicity. But in the American context, uh, white Americans considered enslaved African Americans who'd been captured and transported to the United States as part of the transatlantic slave trade to be racially inferior outsiders. And I think after emancipation, some of those um, conceptions and constructions of difference persist. So we see racism just infusing these white representations of African-Americans throughout the 19th century uh, in a way that we do not see happening in the Russian context.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I guess one other, the, my second question that just came to mind, Um. you know, is hearing your responses. Um. And it, it, I admit that you may not be able to fully address it because it goes a little bit beyond your 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 it goes beyond your time period, particularly for the Russian case, is um how how long lasting um might we see these portrayals of Russian peasants as we get closer to the Russian Revolution? Mm-hmm. Um in the years immediately thereafter. I mean, is there any consistency, continued continuity that we're we're seeing in the Russian case example, even after um the Bolshevik Revolution? Mm.
1: Well, so the Bolshevik Revolution, the 1917 revolution, um, the, this was such a transformative period in Russian history. And I think we're going to see a, peasants being represented in new ways that are going to advance the projects of and the goals of those governments. So I think we do see a break from the past. Um, and just thinking about my time in Russia, you know, it was interesting. If you talk to people today about their family histories, to what extent do they know, whether they have ancestors who've been, who were serfs or who were peasants. I think, you know, that 1917 revolution was really a kind of a break. And I think there's not so much of um, a far reaching knowledge in some cases about family ancestry. Whereas here in the United States, I think we have more of an awareness um, of family histories relating to slavery and that sort of thing. So that's one, um, you know, interesting difference between the American and Russian context based on those political histories in part.
0: Mm, Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating thinking of your work. I usually like to um, conclude my, my interviews by asking um, my guests if they're working um, on a current or future project. And I'd be super interested in hearing um, what you might be having in mind.
1: Oh, thanks so much for asking. Um, well, I'm working on two new projects right now and both focus on the 19th century. So one relates to the transatlantic fight during the 19th century for black whites and women's rights and looking at the kind of overlap there. And the uh, the other project relates to the history of American exploration
0: Oh wow. <laughs> um, those are those are great topics. And particularly um your, your first project seems so timely considering I think a you know the the surge in new scholarship that's kind of reinvestigating um, the role um of the women's movement and, and, and Black American um, women participation, participation in the suffrage movement. I think of uh, Martha Jones, um, her work, The Vanguard for as one example, but there's so yeah. many more. So yeah. I, I look forward to, to reading um, what you um, produce in the, in the near future with regards to both of those projects. Amanda, thank you. thank you so much for agreeing to come on New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be here with you today, Sharika.
0: Our listeners um, can find a link to um, American Slavery and Russian Serfdom in the Post-Emancipation Imagination on our New Books Network um, website. Until next time. Thank you.